Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic discussion. I think this is going to be a great one and want to let you know up front, if you are new to Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral channel that hosts debates on science, religion, and politics. And want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you are from, Christian, atheist, you name it, we hope you feel welcome and we're glad you're here. With that, very excited. Want to let you know, if you have not heard, next week, very excited, is Dr. Bart Ehrman will be joining us for the first time. He'll be debating Jonathan Sheffield. So that should be a lot of fun. That'll be next Friday. And so, hey, if you want a reminder, consider hitting that subscribe button for reminders of debates like that. So for today, it's going to be an easygoing kind of format. We're basically going to have Dr. Malpass will be getting us started. He'll be kind of just giving a kind of a guide for his kind of argument or position, and then it'll be open dialogue where the guests will be discussing with each other openly and then Q&A. This will be a short one, folks. Our guests are really busy. We want to respect their time. And so want to let you know we are only going to go for about an hour for the actual kind of debate discussion, and then it'll be about 15 minutes for the Q&A. And so want to let you know if you want to get your questions in early, and I, I can't guarantee we'll get to read all of them. So the earlier, the better. And Lastly, before we say hello to our guests, want to let you know that they're linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more from our guests, especially given that it's abridged today in terms of our format, well, hey, great opportunity, great reason to click those links that are in the description waiting for you. So with that, want to say hello. We're thankful to have both of our guests here. Dr. Brown, thrilled to have you back again. I think it's been maybe a year. It's been a long time. So we're thrilled to have you. And so Dr. Brown is a theologian and also a very popular YouTuber as well as debater. And so we're glad to have you here, Dr. Brown. Thanks so much for coming back. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And first time having Dr. Malpass, we're thrilled to have you here as well. I, Folks, I was telling, I was saying before the debate, I said, the, the level of rigor in terms of like kind of the uh, the brain power for this discussion, if you, if you don't mind me bragging about you guys, is that I think this is going to be tremendous, folks. And so we're excited to have Dr. Malpass, who has also uh, had a lot of really interesting debates. So, for example, at Capturing Christianity and other places, it's been really awesome to get to listen to him. And so we're thrilled to have him here so we can listen to him here at Modern Day Debate. So thanks, Dr. Malpass, for being here. It's a joy to have you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And so with that, we'll basically hand it over to Dr. Malpass to kind of get the ball rolling. And so this is kind of like a flexible, uh, roughly like five to ten minutes, whatever kind of time he needs. And then we'll go into that open discussion. The floor is all yours. Thanks so much. OK, thanks very much. So um, I think it's seeing as we're talking about the problem of, of evil, the problem of suffering, that um, it's incumbent upon me, I guess, as the atheist to lay out a case so that we can talk about that for the rest of the hour. So I'm going to just very quickly share my screen and show you um, what I'm calling a modest argument, um, modest evidential argument from suffering. Um, so it's very straightforward, um, just some definitions at the beginning. Um, S is just some fact about suffering where um, that doesn't really matter what that is, but just pick, insert some fact about suffering that your favorite particular example about something horrible that happens to somebody. Um, the, and then I is the hypothesis of indifference. Um, so those of you who know philosophy of religion literature quite well will already spot that this is inspired by Paul Draper's version of the um, argument from evil, although it's much more simplified than his, I think. Um, the hypothesis of indifference is basically just the idea that the 
um, the kind of nature and circumstances around um, sentient beings suffering is not the output uh, or not the product of um, uh, an intelligence, whether that's um, benevolent or evil. Um, it's just not that. So it, this hypothesis is not quite the same thing as, na as naturalism. It kind of includes naturalism, but um, there's no reason to suppose that, I mean, for all the hypothesis of indifference says, there may there could be ghosts or, you know, whatever. Um, it's not strictly speaking naturalism. It's just saying um, that the world and our uh, circumstances relevant to suffering isn't the product of um, an intelligence. And then uh, T is just the hypothesis of theism. And here, all I mean by this is very straightforward. It's just your um, omni-god. So the god that's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all good, perfectly good. Uh, so classical god of theism. Um, and then all the argument is, um, premise one, it says the probability of suffering on the hypothesis of indifference is quite high. Uh, premise two says the probability of suffering on the hypothesis of theism is quite low. Uh, from these, it follows that the probability of suffering on indifference is greater than the probability of suffering on theism. Um, and that by definition, it, that just means that suffering is evidence that favours indifference over theism. So the conclusion of this argument isn't that God doesn't exist. I haven't logically proved that God doesn't exist. Um, a theist might even accept this argument um, because what they might do is say, yeah, um, evil is evidence that favours indifference over theism, but you know what? There's more evidence that comes into play that's relevant to my decision. Um, so they might have a proof that God exists. So even though this is evidence that favours indifference over theism, it kind of gets swamped out by other things that they take themselves to know. So it's a modest argument. Um, but what it's just saying is if we just focus on the facts that are about suffering, then that makes it more likely that indifference is true, that theism is false, than the other way around. It doesn't make it more likely that theism is true. Um, so I think they could probably just stop there because that's that's basically the argument. Um, I'm this is a I guess a version of the evidential argument, which is that's to say it's contrasting with the logical argument um, from evil, which would be to say that um, the existence of God is logically incompatible with the existence of evil. I'm not making that claim. Um, for all I'm saying here, um, God could exist, um, and I'm not saying that God's existence is rules out uh, evil by definition. Um, all I'm saying is that the presence of evil is more expected if God doesn't exist than if he does. Um, and that makes it evidence in favour of God not existing. So I think I'm just going to stop there because hopefully, I mean, I could, I guess I could leave this up for a bit, at least if we're going to talk about the premises so people can, can see them. Um, so Mike, I'm happy to hand over to you now if you wanted to have a start with something. Uh, sure, sure thing. So from my perspective, there is no problem of suffering unless God exists. There is the pain of suffering, but there's not the problem of suffering. When, when a, a spider is eating a fly, there's not a theological problem for the fly. It's just reality of the natural world. But if there is a God, and it is the God of the Bible, a good and compassionate and all-knowing and all-powerful God, then suffering becomes a real question and a real problem. How can a good God create a world in which such suffering exists, so much of it seemingly random and to no purpose? But 
without a God, there is no answer to the problem of suffering. And with a God, there are profound and extraordinary answers. So I would certainly not say even for a split second that the problem of suffering or evil proves the existence of God. But I would say, given the other indications for the existence of God, that the God of the Bible is the one that provides a redemptive answer for the problem of suffering. So I would, I would look first broadly at the evidences of creator, that there is no rational explanation for the origin of the universe without a divine first cause that we cannot believe nothing created everything. There remains no scientific explanation for the origin of life. There remains no scientific explanation for the DNA coding in human beings. There remains no scientific evidence even for our understanding of, of uh, moral consciousness. And all of those things point to the reality of an intelligent designer. Then supernatural divine intervention documented miracles that defy rational explanation. Those also point to the reality of the creator. And then the Bible now gives us guidelines explaining that human beings are created in the image of God, and yet we willfully sinned, which brings great suffering and pain in the world, but that God is working in it for a purpose. And that many times we go through terrible things in life, horrific things, things that we would not wish on anyone else. And yet through them, we grow through them. Good things happen. So it's rational to say that this all powerful, all good, all knowing God could create a world foreseeing the suffering that would come. And yet knowing that he could bring something good out of it, it may not be something that we fully can conceive and understand now. But our micro experiences tell us that the macro could be true as well. So I, I would first start with evidences for the existence of God. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm not, not prepared to, to debate the details of, of biology and geology, but the, the broad strokes. I would start there. And then I would say that you take God out of the picture. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. It's all random. Even the conversation we're having here is, is ultimately of, of no cosmic significance. You factor God in, now there can be meaning, hope, redemption, and a good explanation for the problem of suffering. Um, okay, so uh, I'm happy enough for it to be the case that you take yourself to have strong, independent reasons to believe that God exists outside the context of this argument. Um, but of course, we're not debating those today. So I mean, I'd happily debate with you um, most of those arguments because I, I think I see them all differently to you. But they're not the context of the debate today, not directly at least. Um, like I said, I'm happy enough that a theist could say, well, you know, even if this argument goes through, I believe in God and it's perfectly rational because I have stronger um, additional evidence. So if you had um, a proof, an ontological proof or something, you might just take that that's irrefutable and even though this is evidence that counts against theism, uh, theism's true anyway, and reasonable to believe that. I'm fine if you if you take that to be your position. If you have other independent reasons for believing in God, that's fine. Um, let's just park that for the time being, because it's not the, directly the conversation we're, we're having today. Um, and and just on the on the point about well, 
of course, if, if God doesn't, on the hypothesis that God doesn't exist, that this classical God doesn't exist, there's no problem of evil. The problem of evil is simply just that if there was um, an agent who had the ability and knew about an evil that was going on and was perfectly moral, the thought then seems to be, well, he would do something about that because there's something intrinsic about being moral, doing the right thing, that you don't just stand by and watch somebody, say, drowning without doing something to try and help them. And yet it sort of seems like there's lots of times where people just suffer um, and there's a problem, which is merely a problem for that hypothesis of there being a really powerful, perfectly good person who knows about it, who's not doing anything. So, of course, if you, if you on the hypothesis that there's nobody there, that, that problem doesn't exist. Now, you might say, well, suffering is still kind of problematic. I mean, it's difficult to, um, obviously, it's difficult to experience suffering. It's something we all have to deal with in our lives or whatever. But the problem of evil, this problem here, um, doesn't doesn't um, isn't a problem if God doesn't exist. Of course, it's only a problem between the clash between exist the evil and that hypothesis that God exists. That's the problem. So of course, it doesn't exist. That problem isn't isn't there if God doesn't exist, um, right? Let's just see if we're on the same page about that. Uh, yes. Again, there's no problem of evil, problem of suffering, unless yeah. God exists. It's just a painful reality of this world. So That's right. uh, to, to focus in on our, on our specific subject then, it was just presented to me as a discussion and debate about the problem of evil and suffering. So mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly which uh, sure. point of view you'd be espousing. But uh, if you have evidence of divine intervention that can only be explained as divine intervention, if every rational explanation fails, then you'd have to mm -hmm. say, okay, the question then is, why isn't there more divine intervention? But just one categorical example, let alone hundreds, let alone thousands, let alone millions, would then force you to rethink the indifference position. Uh, Craig Keener, in his two-volume study, Miracles, looks at the rational arguments against the miraculous, then goes through different ways of understanding scripture, and then begins to catalog uh, in detail from ancient accounts to contemporary accounts and only allowing in the book those that, that could be rigorously tested in various ways or had numerous eyewitnesses to attest. And in his estimation, there are at least uh, 200 million people on the planet today that could be, uh, they could give eyewitness attestation to the miraculous. And in many cases, it's people delivered from horrific suffering, documented medical miracles and things of that sort. So the question for me is not, does God exist? Again, as I say, there are the rational arguments for it than the experiential arguments. The question is that we could say, why doesn't God do more? Why doesn't he intervene more? Why does he allow anyone to die? Why is it that most people, the vast majority of people with cancer, that are prayed for with terminal conditions end up dying. Babies starving around the world and dying. The question would be, why is it seen that God intervenes selectively? Uh, but we couldn't deny the reality of the accounts, the testimonies. To me, it becomes somewhat irrational to try to, to argue the evidence of, 
of divine intervention. And the answer as to why God does not uh, intervene more is because he's given us a world where we make choices. As a result of choices we've made, the world is fallen and sinful. He has not rescinded our free will, and therefore he works in the midst of it. So he gives us evidence of his goodness, evidence of his power, evidence of his reality. But then we're in a fallen, messed up world, which is why the Bible speaks of this world and the world to come, that not everything will be fixed in this world. Some things will be, but we have enough evidence to point us to the world to come. But I, I wonder how you would respond to evidence of divine activity that would seem to argue against indifference. Well, I haven't seen any evidence of divine activity myself. And I, I mean, um, I don't think that it's widely regarded as having been established in any objective sense. Um, I'm, I'm aware of Keener's book, but I've, not, I've certainly not read that. Um, listen, I, I'm in, happy to accept that 200 million, maybe more people take themselves to have had experiences like that. Religious experience is a genuine thing. Um, but whether that's got any veracity to it, I would say it's highly disputed, right? It's not, but I think that's beside the point. I mean, are we debating whether or not religious experience is evidence of God's existence? Or are we debating whether or not um, suffering is evidence against God's existence? I mean, it seems to me that we're discussing the latter. Um, so I'm happy, again, like I said, I'm happy if you take yourself to have independent evidence that shows you that God exists. And that's why, um, you know, even if you didn't have any rebuttal to the, the argument that I gave, that you still believe in God, that, that's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. But I suppose, look, let me pose a question like this. Um, so why is it? Well, I suppose you gave an answer there, which was effectively that the presence of evil is explained um, an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful being would allow evil in the world um, because of freedom. That's why um, there's evil in the world. Um, so obviously that's a very well-known response to the problem of evil. I mean, the first thing I want to say about that is, well, what about um, suffering that's not caused by free choices, right? There's natural evils. There's evils that, you know, before the, the animal kingdom or uh, the eons that preceded free choices of, of agents, of humans uh, on this planet or whatever. There's, most evil seems to not have anything to do with free choices of moral agents. So even if we were to just accept that that was a rational explanation for some of those evils, it still leaves most of the evil on the table unexplained. Um, but it seems to me that even if we zoom in on that, it's highly problematic. I mean, so the Christian story has something to do with there being a fall that happened in the past and that that changed nature in some way so that there is evil in the world. Um, and that was a direct result of a free choice that was made by the first humans or whatever. Um, but it feels to me like while that might be a coherent, uh, in my view, deeply implausible, but at least coherent causal story that led up to you know, why is there evil now? Because somebody in the past did something and that led to this happening. It doesn't, it doesn't morally justify there being evil now. You know, why did an all-perfect being allow a fall to happen? I mean, that question is still there and it's not explained by simply saying that the fall happened. That just seems to be the sort of thing that you wouldn't expect an all-perfect being to, to allow to happen. That's already... I mean, the fact that a fall happened is just another example, another 
piece of um, evidence of suffering that we need to explain if it's not expected on the hypothesis of theism. So to me, it doesn't solve any questions. It actually just makes, it's just an instance of one of the things that's problematic on theism. Like we shouldn't expect that to be the case, that there's um, a fall, right? It seems to me that that's unlikely, everything else being equal. Yeah, so so uh, I would say it's actually the, the exact opposite, that, that this is further evidence for the, the rightness of the position I'm putting forward. First, when I was talking about miracles, I was not talking about religious experiences, say my radical conversion at the age of 16 and, and being set free from every drug use virtually overnight. Uh, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about documented medical miracles, documented scientific miracles. Uh, one of my dearest friends in the world in India, when his, his wife died of brain cancer years ago, it had, it had spread through her, her body, spread through her spine. She was crippled. She had had cancer for years and then finally uh, in the brain, through her spine, uh, crippled. Uh, I was shown the hospital where she died. Uh, I've met people that were there when she died, when the, the doctors put the sheet over her face and left the room. And 15 minutes later or half hour later, she jumped out of the bed, healed, jumping up and down to the shock of the people in the hospital. Uh, I, I met her. Uh, she lived, uh, what, four or five years further after that. I'm, I'm talking about kinds of things that, that people are stunned by, that doctors will look you in the face and say, it's a miracle. That's what Craig is talking about when he says 200 million people have witnessed those things. Okay, so but let's just say those things happened and that they show that, that God exists. I mean, even still, that just doesn't interact with the argument about suffering, it seems to me. Oh, no, it, Suffering it could still be evidence against the theist hypothesis, even if uh, right, the but, evidence is also on the table. Right, so, so to, to, to further explain this, you cannot use the argument of total indifference because you have clear examples of divine intervention often in answer to prayer, often that can be directly traced to prayer. That person A feels moved on to pray for person B in another part of the world, not knowing what's going on with person B, who then receives a miraculous answer at that point, which is then documented in notes compared. So you have evidence of this, which points to the truth of scripture. And uh, I, I would first say it's extremely arrogant for us as mortal human beings that can't even agree on thousands of different minor subjects to think that we are going to say what an all perfect eternal being should and shouldn't do. That's the first thing. The second thing, it makes perfect sense that God wanting to ultimately have a people that would love him freely and would enjoy him forever would put us in a world where we could make choices and where there would be consequences to our choices, but it is an end result over the process of many thousands of years that going through these things, learning, growing from suffering and pain, we would become better people through it and ultimately choose to love God and be with him and enjoy him forever. It makes perfect sense. We raise our own children and we let them make choices. And often the choices are disastrous but many times they have to learn from those choices. And if they can learn rightly, they can grow from them. The well, fact I mean, that- uh, Sorry, if I can just jump in there. I mean, um, while it might be reasonable to let children make choices, you wouldn't allow a child to stab another one, right? I mean, 
that you, that is not justified by letting them learn the lesson of what it's like to stab someone and suffer the consequences. You take the knife out of their hands, right? You wouldn't right, go through with it. So, so the analogy doesn't really work there. It seems. Oh, of, of course it works because we're not talking about children in a home. We're talking about adults who have free choice. But you were making an analogy with children, and but that analogy doesn't really match up with. Uh, so the relationship between up, God and children on grown up children, human beings, because we're talking about the choices that that you free will human beings make. So I said children in terms of the fact that we're created as God's children. So would you like it? Say there's a per, the perfect being that that uh, whose existence you deny. Would you prefer that he created you so you have no freedom of choice? Would you like it right now if if we could just press a button and you and every human being on the planet will be zapped? And you no longer have freedom of choice, but this problem of suffering goes away. Well, I, freedom comes in degrees, right? It's not freedom or no freedom, right? You don't have perfect freedom. You're not free to flap your arms and fly out of the window right now. Um, but you could be. You could be more free in the sense that you could have that ability to choose between as well, right? So freedom isn't an all or nothing. And actually, if I was given the choice overnight for someone to say, God could remove your freedom to stab someone, an innocent person with a knife. I would quite happily get rid of that freedom. Why do I need that freedom? As long as I can choose who I love and what food to eat and what music to listen to. You can't that's choose the type who you of freedom love. I'm interested in. You can't choose who you love. Well, what do you mean? You can't in, in other words, yes, freedom has limitations. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not free uh, to, to become an elephant and run through the jungle. I don't have the ability mm -hmm. to to transform into a, another being, or like you said, flap my wings and, and say, fly to Mars. But in terms of the freedoms that are important here, freedom to make moral choices, freedom to choose who you love, freedom to choose a career, a profession. If, if God said, look, you're just gonna make too many bad choices. You choose who you love, it ends up being a disaster, it breaks your heart, you end up in a revenge killing, you know, because of being betrayed, so we can't allow that freedom to determine which job you take. But well, you may end up making a decision that ends up that you create something that leads to mass destruction. So we can't give you that freedom. So if we're going to have freedom, we're going to make choices. And sometimes we're going to make wrong choices or painful choices. And again, to have it makes perfect sense to me that a perfect being would create this world and give us these basic freedoms which have consequences but ultimately we can grow through them we can become better people through them we can learn from our mistakes and one thing that we do see for sure is often good comes out of evil or good comes out of suffering you know for for example uh, a young person is uh you know drinking a lot and and they're they're careless they just started driving and they, they, they get drunk, drive in the car, get killed in a car accident. That's a terrible tragedy. But perhaps it leads to an awakening among young people in a nation. And suddenly they realize the, the craziness of doing this. And, and deaths are, are cut down by 90% because of it. So it's a terrible thing that happened, but good can come out of it. I'm looking at this at a much larger picture and say much pain, much suffering here, but we see a God who's a redeemer who can bring good out of evil. Okay, so, the, um, I mean, just because something follows from something happening, right, doesn't, and even if the thing that follows is good, um, that doesn't 
necessarily mean that um, that that thing following from the first thing justifies the first thing from happening, right? Like, I mean, um, if I cut your hand off, right, and then it just so happened that a passerby um, did a really good deed and became a much better person for doing it, doesn't mean I'm justified in cutting your hand off. It's still objectively a bad thing for me to do, right? So just because the consequences happened by chance to turn out with something good uh, doesn't, you know, what you're talking about is the idea of a compensating good. So sometimes a bad thing can happen, but it can be compensated by a good that follows from it. So for instance, you might subject your child to um, have a tooth removed or something, and it's quite painful for them, but it's compensated for by the fact that um, it's in their long-term interests to have that rotten tooth removed or something, right? And so you can see how that initial bit of pain is compensated for by the thing that's happening. Um, two things about that, right? It has to be that the good is actually better than the bad thing that you put them through. You wouldn't get um, a tooth removed um, if it wasn't for any purpose, right? Because it'd be basically no good that came out of it and the, the bad would just uh, not be compensated for. So it actually does have to outweigh it. But secondly, there has to be no other way of um, getting them to that good that didn't involve that bad or something equally bad. If you could just give them a pill that got rid of the, the, the whatever it was, the problem in their mouth without taking the tooth out, but you just chose to put them through a painful tooth removal surgery anyway, that would be bad, even if it had a, a good that followed from it that was uh, outweighed the bad in the first place. So it seems to me that God could quite easily have made people come to the realization that um, that drinking was bad or something without like turning them into clockwork robots with no free will at all. He could influence them more subtly. Like with an advertising campaign, for instance, the government can do that. You know, it's not beyond God's power to do that. So uh, it just seems to me that you can't just appeal to any old consequence of a bad thing happening and say that that morally justifies it, right? It would have to be actually outweighing the bad that happened. And it would also have to be that there was no other way of getting that good without some bad of that type, right? Right. So, so what I'm saying is there is no other way to get to the ultimate goal without giving us the freedom that we have with all of the consequences of it. Second, I'd say that your, your argument is self-refuting and that we know for a fact that advertising campaigns and, and subtle influences don't work, that many times we don't wake up, the, the person doesn't change his diet till he has a heart attack. And then he wakes up, changes his whole diet and lifestyle, and is healthier than ever. That's just a, a reality in, in this world. And what we understand, a fundamental gospel truth, because just bringing this perspective, that God would not create a world in, in which the path of redemption involved his own son coming into the world and dying for us, if there is another way to do it. I would say that while you have theories about how God could have done it better, none of those actually work themselves out in, in this life in this way. I'd also say in terms of a, of a greater good, that number one, those of us who have learned from our mistakes and learned from our suffering would say we're far better people through it. You know, you even have someone like a Solzhenitsyn, you know, blessing the prisons that he was in, you know, because of, of what it made him as a man. You hate going through that, uh, but you can often come out in ways that you never would have without going through those things. Uh, and, you know, even the, the, the saying when you work out in the gym, no pain, no gain, there's a certain reality to that in terms of many of the most important things in life. And then if we are talking from the faith God perspective, we're not just talking about this world. We're saying that forever and ever 
and ever and ever, there will be a compensatory good that massively outweighs the evil. You know, Paul writes, for example, with all the suffering he went through, he said, I, I, I don't even consider that suffering worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we do believe that what's to come so far outshadows all of the horrors, all of the children dying of leukemia, all of the senseless murders, all of the bloodshed, all of the diseases and famines that we're saying it will so far outweigh that, that will make perfect sense in the light of eternity and that we have powerful glimpses of that reality in the here and now. But one thing that, that we could have established at the outset is when you're talking about good and evil, as an atheist, you would ultimately be a materialist, right? You don't, you don't believe that there is something within us that survives after life, correct? After death. I don't think that that's entailed by the by the negation of by the position of atheism. It doesn't say anything about about survival after death at all. Oh, okay. So, we, uh, in any case, then, just wondering, uh, without the existence of a god. So you're not saying you're agnostic, but but atheist that there is no god. Uh, how do you define good and evil? Where do those categories even come from? Well, uh, so. Uh, <laughs> this feels somewhat unfair because on the argument, I mean, taking the burden of proof here by making the argument trying to defend it, but I also want to be clear about what I do have to defend and what I don't have to defend. It doesn't really matter if um, on atheism there's no such thing as good and evil, because um, the question is just uh, suffering, um, whether that's ultimately good or evil, um, is surprising on theism. But it's not surprising on atheism, right, or on indifference, if there's no perfectly good God there, then suffering, which exists even if evil doesn't exist, um, is there and it's not surprising because there's no perfectly good God looking out for anybody. Um, so it's sort of independent. I mean, you might have a view about what, what good and bad are, and there are atheists who are uh, moral realists and who hold different versions of that theory. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of inclined towards those things, but it doesn't really matter even if I could be a textbook nihilist about, um, you know, an atheist who doesn't believe in moral values at all. Um, it won't make any difference to the argument about uh, about suffering, right? Because it's just, all I need to defend is just that it's not surprising um, if there's no God that's looking out for anybody, right? That's true even if evil uh, is a fiction or something, right? Okay, no, that's, that's fair enough. It's just, you know, you use the word good and evil repeatedly. Sure. Because and on, the, on the theist hypothesis, those terms have proper context and yes. that's where it's problematic Got because it. it shouldn't be the evil on the theist hypothesis because there's an all good god that should be there you know yes uh, exactly not letting those things happen right that's and, and, right clear fair enough so then to, to try to to push back specifically on, on, on your thesis again in, in my mind there was a kind of a broader thing that we were addressing but to, to give it focus and in the in the, the mm -hmm. time frame that we have if you were presented with evidence that from a rational perspective pointed to divine intervention in, in this world, okay, then would that give any credence to the idea that the theistic explanation of the problem of suffering should be considered? In other words, what, what would get you to, to wonder about the the indifference, because in your case, it has to be 100% indifference. We all agree 
there can be unusual things that happen that are not necessarily miracles. Mm -hmm. That someone has a sudden remission of, of a disease and it can't be explained. Or it looked like a miracle, you should have hit this car and you didn't, but we don't know if it's divine intervention or not. So I, I accept it. Not everything that seems unusual points to divine intervention. But from your viewpoint, because God does not exist, then the indifference should be 100%, correct? Uh, granted that unusual things may happen, but there is no divine intervention ever if God does not exist, correct? Of course, yeah. How could there be divine intervention if God doesn't exist? Right. So if, if you were presented with rational, credible evidence, documented, like, like Lee Strobel does in his book, The Case for Miracles, okay. um, if, if you were, could be presented with that, that there is some evidence that uh, of divine intervention, then what would that do to your theory? I mean, obviously I'm saying if, if you had something pointing well, to the existence of God, what would it do to you as an atheist? But I'm just saying your argument of indifference has to be a hundred percent. So if I can show you exceptions to that, what would that do to your argument? Well, look, if there was um, an instance of divine intervention that would entail that in the in hypothesis of indifference was false, that's true. But, you know, when it comes to what I believe, right, I'm going to have a whole wide range of um, uh, of evidences and my like opinions about what's true and my appraisal uh, of things, right. So it might be that um, in one instance, so how, maybe it's best to describe this with an analogy. Say, um, say there is some evidence. Um, say Colonel Mustard is, has been murdered in the library, right, from Cluedo or whatever. So there's, Colonel Mustard's been murdered in the library. And um, just before that, there's video footage of um, Professor Plum entering the library. Right now that, taken at face value, is evidence that Professor Plum was the murderer of um, Colonel Mustard, right? That, I mean, that just is, everything else being equal, he was there, that's some evidence. It raises the, the probability that he was the murderer. Um, but it might be that you also have video footage of um, uh, Professor Plum leaving the library and then going live on TV and accepting an award uh, exactly the time that Colonel Mustard um, lost his life, right? which completely disproves the po possibility that he was there. So your background evidence, if you knew both of those things, even though um, taken on its own, him being, you know, uh, on the scene shortly before does raise the probability. It, the other piece of evidence just massively swamps that out. So you, you know he definitely wasn't uh, because he was live on TV accepting an award in front of millions of people at exactly the, the time that the other guy was being killed. So, uh, and that's my view. Like, I will concede that maybe uh, I look at some book you show me and my credence in supernatural experiences goes up. I mean, realistically i doubt very much that, that would happen but let's say that that did happen and i started to think oh it's a bit a bit little bit more likely now and um, that would start to balance out against all of the other things that i thought right well i wouldn't have my mind changed um we don't just change our minds because of one piece of evidence coming across our desks right we have to evaluate that against all of the other things that we think same with you i mean if i was to persuade you now that um evil counted against the hypothesis of theism even if you were to accept that in some sense that was right you would, we would probably say, well, I've got irrefutable uh, religious experience and then problem of uh, the ontological argument, the argument from contingency, blah, blah, blah. Like it wouldn't outweigh all of those other things that you thought. So I just think, it, you know, 
whatever, you could get me to read some book and I might change my mind slightly on the probabilities over there in some aspect. I'm an open-minded kind of guy, right? So maybe I would think that that was somewhat more evidence in that favor, but I don't think it would change my mind ultimately, right? Um, and I think I could still rationally take to believe that the, the hypothesis of indifference is probably true, just like you could accept that in some sense, evil counts against the theory of uh, theism and still go on believing that anyway, because right. of the other evidence you've got. Right. The, the difference would be that my own view already presupposes the many objections, the many problems, the many issues, and the Bible addresses them directly. The, the Bible head on deals with human suffering and pain and, and prayers mm -hmm. that don't seem to be answered. And the whole book of Job that I wrote a commentary on wrestles with this. And, and Job uh, speaks things against God that would make an atheist proud. You know, if there is a God, then he's a monster. Um, and that's all in the Bible. So, so I already have that packaged in, you know, the issues, the challenges, the objections, as you say, they present a problem to, to my viewpoint and, and my viewpoint head on addresses those problems. And I also understand that ultimately uh, religious experience is, is going to be the thing that, that impacts someone even more than a rational argument. Uh, you know, there is there are actually British atheists, uh, two brothers and a sister, uh, they may have been in their 50s or 60s, but but convinced atheists and not wondering about things at all over a period of, of you know, decades. And uh, and this is not meant to prove something to you, but just to illustrate a point. Uh, one of the brothers, uh, to his absolute shock, uh, became deeply aware that God existed and, and had a radical religious conversion experience, became a Christian, and could not imagine how he could possibly break this to his brother and sister who would scorn him over this, finally made contact with the brother, only to find out that the brother had the identical experience, and then they finally get hold of the sister, only to find out that she had the identical experience, all unrelated. You know, those things obviously make the kind of impact that when the three of you experience this together, all independently, uh, if someone comes with a philosophical argument, that probably is not going to trouble them that much. So that person may have come to that belief um but you know i'm very skeptical that that that, that type of anecdote is, is um you know people remember things differently and people talk to each other and then they grow to think that they've had the same type of experience whatever there's no way to really prove whether they had exactly the same and you know i'm not really interested in that because maybe they did that maybe they didn't right but i could there's there's nothing rational to say about it i mean it's just an anecdote oh no uh, again there there are millions millions of such anecdotes which there's millions of anecdotes yes right, and that the, doesn't the, add and, up to and because i've experienced many of them myself and know many of the people personally and know the shocking nature of the stories and often can tie them directly to prayer and and again person a overwhelmingly burdened to pray for person b at a given time well okay without any knowledge of what's happening only to find out that at that moment that person experienced divine intervention. But but let me get back to the point the point I was making. I was okay. responding to your larger thing about how this would affect you and, and agreeing that a, a rational argument will go so far, but only so far. Mm -hmm. But here's my point. Once I could convince you, as you say, you're an open-minded person, when you read the medically documented evidence, I, I mean peer-reviewed scientific journals, of of people people blind and deaf people being prayed for and and i, I can get your actual references uh you know through james if you like so you can review the in scientific journals 
where they measured, they did measurements of people's ability to hear and see before prayer and then prayed for these people. I'm talking about good numbers of people, you know, in an impoverished nation and then measured them again and saw the direct results of prayer. Well, okay, so, but I feel that we've, we've, we've gone, <laughs> all of those things are hotly contested, right? And I mean, no, not really. I, if, I mean, things are, things are documented. They're, right, there's but, also... There's, but let me just finish. The, the point I was making, once I can get your mind open to the idea of divine intervention, the Bible explains the rest. The Bible explains why we're in the state that we're in, why we have these issues, and how God can bring good out of it. So all I need is just a little crack in the door to the idea of indifference and show you the reality of divine intervention. Now we can make sense out of everything else. That was my point, that I just needed a crack okay. in the door to challenge the, the idea of indifference in, in, your, in your basic presentation. And with that crack in the door, I can now say, yes, given the existence of this God, now we can make sense of everything else. Now we have a redemptive answer to the problem of suffering. Okay, so I, I think to some extent there's a kind of, um, there's obviously a radical difference in perspectives between the two of us. And, one way to look at it is like this, your um, presentation, the whole, the way that you've described it is like trying to change my mind to try and get me to think about something so that I would come to accept your way of thinking. Um, I'm not trying to get you to accept my way of thinking. I, I don't really care what you think. It doesn't make any difference to me whether you convert to atheism after our conversation or stay religious, right? From my point of view, it doesn't make any difference. I'm not trying to change your mind. Um, I'm really just trying to talk about a philosophical argument. Um, it seems to me that you're more interested in talking about what would change my mind than talking about the, the ways to defend the premises of the argument or to attack them, um, right? I mean, I'm not doing, I'm not doing apologetics for Christianity. I was just talking about, you know, the rational reasons that one might think that evil is evidence against the hypothesis that classical theism is true. Now, whether or not from a psychological point of view, I would be more inclined to adopt your position were certain things to happen, like me reading a book and changing my mind about a perspective or something. That might be true, right? But that wouldn't make any difference to the premises of the argument that I presented earlier, but it, it wouldn't actually show that suffering is evident, suffering is not evidence against evil if I was to convert to Christianity for, for any reason. Like, it just wouldn't make any difference. So it just feels to me like, um, as a philosopher over here trying to talk to you and you're talking to me as an apologist, right? And there's a kind of crossing of wires there. So what I'd quite like to do, if we've only got a few moments left, but would be to come back to the philosophy, if that's all right, because um, I'm happy to just concede that, you know, under certain circumstances, I would convert to Christianity and I'd see everything like you. But and that's just not really that interesting to me personally, because I'm a philosopher and I'm not interested in the psychological context of what might make me come to believe in Christianity. That's That's not really that interesting to me as such what is interesting to me is whether or not there's a ration a rational explanation for why um there would be as much suffering as there is if there was a morally perfect um all-powerful all-knowing being um in existence just as a purely intellectual exercise right so it seems to me that what you've given so far is the idea that there would be freedom right so just to go back to that um traditional way of defending uh, theism in the face of the problem of evil is to say uh, freedom would be that. What I was trying to say to you previously was um, I would give up a bit of freedom um, 
you know, I don't need the freedom to cause the Holocaust or whatever. I'd gladly give that up, right? Because it doesn't seem um, to have any value. I only, it's at just the potential to do horrendous evil. Um, I, I don't feel like that's needed for me. I wouldn't feel like I'd lost anything. And I think if there was an all-perfect being, they could shave off the worst of our excesses without that make, without that meaning that we can't learn moral lessons or whatever. What you were trying to do previously was to paint it as we have exactly this level of freedom or nothing. And which would you prefer out of those? Would you want to be a free agent like we are now or a robot with it? No control over what they do at all. seems to me that's a false dichotomy because maybe I would prefer to have freedom than be a robot. But I'd prefer even more than both of those to be just as free as I am now, but not free to say stab you in the face with a fork for no reason. I don't need that freedom. It's just it's freedom that is expected if there was no God. But if there was a God, why would he allow us to have that type of freedom? That just doesn't seem plausible to me. So I'm interested in what the rational sure. answer to that would be. Yeah, and, and just to respond to the larger issue of you speaking as a philosopher and I speak as an apologist, that's that's why we're here. <laughs> in other words, uh, I'm not a philosopher and you're not an apologist. Uh, but for me, my basic answers were given at the outset that the theistic viewpoint is the one that gives rational explanations for why we're in the state we're in and how that comports with an all-good, all-loving, all-knowing God. But to go back to your question then, uh, you seem to know the exact line to draw as to what freedoms you could and couldn't have without hurting other people. Someone else may want more freedom. Someone else may want less freedom. Uh, so now it becomes the point that you can't all be human beings in the same world where everyone gets to pick their, their amounts of, of freedom. But would you accept that you can no longer make any moral choices at, at the, with well, the result that suffering would disappear. I'm not saying that. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's good to have the option to do small amounts of suffering because that is outweighed by the good of moral development or something that comes from it. But it seems implausible to think that the worst excesses of human behaviour are justified on the basis that they allow us to learn lessons, right? For instance, um, the Holocaust uh, involves roughly something like six million Jews being exterminated by uh, the Nazis. Now, does it provide more of an opportunity to learn from the lessons if it was six million rather than 5.9 million? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any reason. It doesn't provide, it doesn't pay for itself in terms of lesson giving that it was exactly that number. Right? Surely it could have been lower, right? And so that the fact that it could have been lower and given delivered the same amount of lesson learning good, a good which seems to me not nearly, uh, it couldn't possibly justify any death really, but th let's suppose you thought that um, some death was justified by its potential for us learning lessons. Um, surely then one fewer death would be just as good in that context. But if right, that's so right, then why would, a, why would God allow more suffering, more people to die, to teach us a lesson that he could have taught us with fewer people? Right. Number one, not everything results in a lesson. Some things are just evil, ugly, terrible in themselves, but that's the result of freedom. So in other words, it's it's not that everything has a compensatory good or a lesson that comes out of it. Some of it is just downright evil and, and wrong well, consequences of choices. Moment. But let me, let me just continue. Well, okay. You have no idea if God did not pre prevent 
the, the slaughter of 100 million people every day. You have no idea if there's not divine intervention or any kind that the Holocaust could have wiped out every Jew on the planet. Instead, God limited it. So your limitation argument philosophically and theoretically works against you just as strongly. And then perhaps it was only something like that, a horrific evil like that, that resulted in the world accepting a modern state of Israel without which the Jewish people would have been totally exterminated. And then finally, we're not looking completely for results in this world. We're saying we have much evidence of the good that can come out of evil and suffering in this world, but we're ultimately saying in eternity. And in eternity, and again, this is the theistic answer, so massively outweighs all of the suffering that it virtually becomes forgotten. But you're presuming to know what God is and isn't doing, and it could only be because of his gracious intervention and, and restraining some of our actions. That's the only reason we haven't completely wiped each other out and, and that there's not chaos and murder on the streets every second of every day. Well, it doesn't seem right to me that, I mean, say, so imagine you're looking after some children and you allow one of them to stab to death another one. And just as he's about to stab to death the second one, you take the knife out of his hand. And someone says, how did you, why did you let him, it's an evil thing you did, letting him stab that first child to death. And you say, yeah, but you know, I prevented him stabbing the second one to death. So, you know, it could have been worse. That was just your argument. No, no, that seems to be what you were saying. No, 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 no. I was responding to your argument at the Holocaust. You flipped it around and said, well, it could have been more, right? So it's analogous to your response to that. Saying that God could have allowed more people to die doesn't in itself justify the amount of people they did allow to die. Right? Could, could have been seven billion. I was just restating oh, your no, argument. No, no. I was no, saying no, no, it let, could let, have let, been fewer, and you were saying it could have been more. No, I'm right? saying perhaps the six million is much fewer. There was perhaps right, like you already have been your, fewer, your fewer. Right. So uh, what I'm saying is you don't know that. When you're arguing why didn't God make it fewer, I'm saying he may have made it much, much fewer. But either way, there's the presumption. What, what I challenge philosophically is the idea of you can precisely set what human freedoms we can and can't have to allow only for a certain amount of suffering and pain in this world. To me, that goes far beyond our ability as human beings. This is when we presume that we would have done things much better than God does. So what we do know is we have this world and we constantly make a mess of it, that we have this world and, and we're fighting each other, that there's without police, there'd be more crime, without nuclear arsenals, we, we'd be killing each other even more, that we do a terrible job of, of treating everyone another, one another fairly. So it, it seems very presumptuous to me that now we who've made such a mess of things where we do have the opportunity and, and we who are the cause of suffering every day by the choices that we make, by the cruelty of a parent towards a child or a spouse towards a spouse or things like that, that we are now going to tell God how he could have done a better job creating the universe. That strikes me as, as a hubris that we have not uh, earned the right to have. Okay, so look, on the one hand, you could say, um, it seems to me that we do have basic cautious types of moral knowledge, right? It strikes me it's not very controversial to say something like, you know, if you come across an innocent person who's drowning, um, it's wrong to just walk on and not do anything about that, right? I, I just take myself to know that. Um, 
So it just doesn't seem like, I mean, a God might be like, you know, much more complicated and have different things going on or whatever, but it's not clear to me how it could be the case that um, God can be in an analogous situation, but for some reason it's not wrong for him to let that person suffer and not do anything about it, right? I mean, so I take myself to have that type of knowledge, I think you do too, so I'm puzzled that you're saying, on the one hand, that well, we just couldn't know, right, because I'm, I'm telling God what to do or something. It's not like that, I'm just applying a very simple uh, piece, piece of moral insight, right, so it's not actually that mysterious. But on the other hand, if you want to say that it's mysterious and we can't say um, why, um, what God's motives would be or whatever, um, then that seems to me that you're taking a view which is referred to in the philosophical literature as sceptical theism, right, which is that, you know, God's motives are um, unknown to us and we shouldn't make any, you know, he, he could have a morally justifying reason for any piece of evil that comes along, right? Um, but if you take that view, then there's a whole host of uh, problems that it opens up. I mean, if God could have a reason, you know, beyond your ken for allowing, say, you know, the suffering of uh, the Jewish people in World War II, he could easily have a morally justifying reason for massively deceiving you about um, Christianity being true, for instance. So if, if you don't, if you uh, say that God's motives are so beyond your ability to determine, then, you know, kind of that feels to me like it does undermine your position, right? You, you must take yourself at least to believe that you know God's moral motives enough to know that he wouldn't lie to you about uh, the story of Christianity being true. Right? Right. That's so, in contrast with your, your other statement that we shouldn't take ourselves to know what God's moral motives might be. I mean, you can't have it both ways, it seems to me. Oh, no, I, I know what his moral motives response, are. Dr. Brown, and then we've got to go into the Q&A right after this. Okay, yeah, sure thing. Yes, yeah, so, so number one, uh, I do know what his moral motives are because they're laid out plainly in Scripture, and, and they're, they're good uh, without exception. Uh, number two, I've walked with him for almost 50 years now and seen his goodness and faithfulness and seen that many things that did not seem to be the best to me that worked out far better than I could have imagined. And number three, the whole message of the cross is that God enters into this world, uh, into our suffering, and brings something better out of it. Number four, I was I was pushing back against your argument about freedom, and you could you could call the shots as to exactly how much freedom you would have that we would suffer. And that that's what I referred to as as going beyond the right that we had to do that. And number five, we're we're speaking once again of this world and the world to come. I'm taking the whole package. I'm looking at the whole larger subject. And because there is so much evidence for the reality of God from the things I started from the origin of the universe, origin of life, moral consciousness, DNA coding, things like that, because we have the evidence of God working in our own lives, and because we have the prophetic evidence of the scripture, even God laying out the history and destiny of the Jewish people centuries in advance, that I have no question whatsoever of his reality. Now I'm trying to look at how that reality works out in this world and, and how God himself provides an answer to the problem of suffering. So obviously we have very different approaches in, in this, but I think the pushback uh, is, is useful. I mean, the talking to each other while talking past each other, I think has value in, in terms of laying out the, the different ways that we see things. Yeah, and I don't uh, think we've talked past each other throughout this. I think we've been, been engaging with what we've been saying. Oh, good, so good. That's, that's my hope as well. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. This has been a really 
excellent conversation. And we're going to jump into the Q&A. want to let you know, folks, it is a abridged format today. Our guests are busy, but if you want to hear more, we want to let you know, hey, check out their links in the description. This is a great opportunity. And we're going to jump into those questions right now. Folks, got to warn you, just as right now, I say the questions that we have, we probably have enough time to get through within 15 minutes. But any questions that come in after this, I got to give you a fair warning. We might not get to read them. So first, Alien X Gaming, appreciate your question, said, would you agree, I think this is for Dr. Brown, they said, would you agree that God knows everything from the past and also what will happen in the future? If so, I would argue that free, uh, free will is just an illusion. Would you agree, Dr. Brown? Oh, no, not, not at all. Uh, I don't accept that that foreknowledge equates with predestination. Uh, according to the scriptures, God inhabits eternity. He lives and exists outside of time. So he can see what choices you make based on your own free will before they happen, because to him, there is no, there is no time. Uh, look at it like this. You videotape a, a game, your favorite sports event. You're going to miss it live. So you videotape it to watch afterwards. By the time you watch it, everything is fixed, cannot be changed but you're watching things that were real-time events with players making real choices with real consequences. That's how things are with God. Uh, he foresees because he exists outside of time, and he therefore sees the choices that we freely make before we make them. Uh, but no, I, I do not accept the, the idea that foreknowledge equates with absolute predestination. Thanks so much. And then Brian Stevens, thanks for your question, said, in the story of people having an identical experience, I think this is for Dr. Brown, what was this identical experience that they all had? Oh, with, uh, with the atheists, uh, I don't remember all the details. I mean, I, I could give endless stories of extraordinary conversion experiences or healing stories that were coupled directly to prayer. But as, as I recall, it was, uh, again, I don't remember all the details, but it was out of the blue, a sudden awareness that there was a God. Uh, out of the blue, a, a, a sudden conviction of his reality, which was very unnerving, very shocking, something that each one individually wrestled with before becoming convinced. So it, it wasn't just there's a rainbow. Oh, that's beautiful. God must exist. It was an overwhelming sense, kind of a visitation in their own lives. I just don't remember the details of it. You got it. Thanks so much. And thanks for this question from Flat Earth Denier. It says, uh, Dr. Brown, how would you explain when prayers from people of different religions have been answered? Would that suggest that more than one God exists? All right. So first, uh, like my esteemed colleague here, I'd want to examine the evidences for, uh, for the answers to see if they were genuine or not. And then if, if there seem to be bona fide answers, uh, I would say that God can choose, the one true God can choose what prayers he answers or how he works or what his purposes are. And then I'd also say that there, there are other beings that have limited power, created beings, angelic beings that can intervene in certain ways but can only go so far. And ultimately what they will bring is destruction. But, you know, if, if someone of a faith different than mine said, I prayed and XYZ happened and seemed to be miraculous. Uh, perhaps God has a purpose in, in working in their lives that will ultimately draw them to the full truth. I, I can't claim to know everything that God will and will not do. Thanks so much. 
And the Clav Miller, appreciate your question, said, I haven't heard, let's see, they said, uh, they're wondering, Dr. Malpass, what is the, assuming that you're not persuaded uh, that you uh, maintain roughly the same position, they said, what do you think is the best counter argument from Dr. Brown that has the most going for it? So what do you think is kind of the strongest uh, pushback of the responses from Dr. Brown? Um, to the argument that I made in the first place. Correct. I suppose. Um, uh, I think I really only heard two arguments as such that directly referred to the premises. Well, it's indirectly, I guess. But one was the, the free will defense and the other one was skeptical theism. Um, but I, I don't think either of them, I, the skeptical theism response doesn't really make sense in this context because, you know, to go back to my argument, I was saying that um, that evil is more likely uh, less surprising on indifference than on theism. But if you say that you have no idea what God would or wouldn't do, um, then it it's not clear what you should expect. There's nothing you have no expectations whatsoever. So. Uh, it doesn't have any explanatory power in that sense with regards to the presence of evil. Um, so it's not clear that that helps in any sense, right? It's, it's still expected on indifference, and then you just have no probability whatsoever on um, theism if you're a skeptical theist. So it seems to me that's no help with the argument there. Um, and um, free will doesn't really, it seems to me, doesn't really make any difference to this either. Um, uh, well, basically, yeah, I mean, uh, so as, I'm not sure really that either of those arguments makes makes enough direct contact to the argument. Um, so we would have to talk for a lot longer, I think, and, and look at the argument in more detail. We we talked about other things more than the argument in particular. Gotcha. And uh, Oflamio, thanks for your question. This is for Dr. Brown. They said, when did perfect cell, the perfect being from another timeline, create the world Dr. Brown? Okay, so when, what do I believe is the origin of, of the universe? Is that the question? I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I've read the, the debates, and because I'm not a scientist, I, I can't evaluate. Scripture could plausibly be read in terms of, of an old earth or a young earth, an old universe or a young universe. Scripture itself, to me, does not speak to that directly. So I don't know. I don't know that there's a good reason to argue with the X number of billions years old, uh, but I'm not a scientist to, to give any definitive statement on that. Gotcha. No problem. And stupid whore energy, as she calls herself, she's a character, she says, isn't saying that there's no other way but through free will undercut the omnipotence of God, and won't there be free will in heaven but no evil? Yes. Yeah, so first thing, it's not up to us to dictate to God what's what's best and the best way to do things. We can have our opinions, but if God in his wisdom and sovereignty saw that this was the best way, that the way to achieve the ultimate good was through this, then, then I trust him on it. And my own experience of, of living with him all these decades and working with people all around the world in the midst of all kinds of suffering and pain, uh, we'd, we'd all agree that this has brought hope and redemption and life and, and helped relieve suffering in this world. But as for the world to come, we've already made our choice. In other words, we have said, God, we want to be with you. God, we don't want to commit acts of evil. 
we've made our choice. Now we're asking for God's help. So having made our choices and having freely chosen to love him, we'll now be with him forever in an environment where there's no temptation, no possibility of sin, because we have already gone through the crucible of testing and freely made our choice. Now God will enforce that choice forever in an environment in which there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, an environment that Dr. Mathis, I'm sure, would, would love to see as well. Thanks so much, and thanks for your question. This one comes in from Oscar, who said, I feel like uh, my disgust over, let's say, molestation is not a choice, and what would be wrong with limiting all our wills this way? This kind of maybe is uh, similar to the idea of, like, if the, uh... but I'll give you a chance to respond, Dr. Brown. Right. Again, once we start saying, okay, I can choose this, but not that, uh, we first, all of us are going to have different parameters of what we choose to choose. So is there a world in which everybody chooses differently? What if I choose, I'm just going to rule over everybody and have power over everybody. That's, that's my choice. So the idea that we can all set the parameters obviously is, is impossible, but it, it, you will end up in a situation in which virtually all moral freedoms are taken away from you. Because one choice leads to another, leads to another, and there are consequences to those choices. If God could have created a world in which those options would be there, and in which we would see the extraordinary evil of sin and the ugliness of sin, he would have. And, and perhaps the level of suffering we see is a fraction of what could have been seen. But bottom line, certain things are only learned, the depth of evil. The, the, the ugliness of wrong choices by giving us the freedoms that we do have. And the only way to, to stop it is ultimately to take away all moral freedom. Thanks so much. And we only have time for a few more questions, folks. So I just want to let you know that we will not get to read all your questions. Shoot me an email if it's a super chat. We know that you have the expectation they be read, and it's not a problem. We can uh, send that back via PayPal. So BW, thanks for your question, said, If free will is in heaven, then can there be genocide there as well? If not, then doesn't that mean there's a way for good to come out of free beings without suffering? So similar to an earlier question. Yeah, again, the reason that there's no pain and suffering forever and ever in the world to come or in new heavens and new earth is because we've made our choice. We've been through the crucible. We've been tested. We have freely chosen to love God. Now we will be with him forever and ever and ever in a perfect in environment. Having made our choice, God will now enforce that choice, but we've made the choice already. Thanks so much. And then JCB Quark, thanks so much, said Dr. William Lane Craig or Dr. Don Lennox are people I would also love to see on here. They, well, we can try, maybe. And Sentinel Apologetics, thanks for your question, said Dr. Brown does, quote, no more see. By the way, this is the last question, folks. Uh, says, does, quote, no more see, unquote, in Revelation 21.1, represent how this uh, chaos kampf is solved by the resurrection of Jesus, and as the hymn, quote, Jesus of the Scars, unquote, beautifully ends, not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Okay, right, so the, the idea of the sea... Uh, typifying powers of chaos and darkness. That's certainly a biblical theme. Yom, Hebrew sea, was also a Canaanite deity. And uh, also the, the chaos kampf, the reference to, to Hermann Gunkel and the, the 
the idea of the the cosmic battle over good and evil and how these things are then typified and personified in natural forces. The fact there's no sea in the book of Revelations to tell us that there will not be that chaos and evil there. And ultimately, the idea of a God who has wounds is a God who enters into our world and suffers with us to bring us into a place we never could have gotten to before. And that'd be the last thing I would emphasize is that the gospel story is, in the end, we will be infinitely better than we ever were just at, at creation, free will human beings before the fall. What will be after redemption is far greater than before. My only question for your viewers was, where are all the questions for Dr. Mappis? But glad to answer those. I, I feel bad, sir, that you didn't get to answer a bunch of questions. But in any case, thanks for sending them my way. Thanks so much to both of you. We really appreciate you, Dr. Brown and Dr. Malpass. It's been a true pleasure. And so we really do appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Want to remind you folks, they're linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more, perfect opportunity. You can click on those links right now. They're waiting for you. And one last thank you to everybody in the chat as well. Thanks so much for your questions. If we didn't get to read your question, feel free to email me at moderndaydebate at gmail, and we can try to give you a, we kind of shoot it back with uh, PayPal or Venmo. So thanks so much, folks. We appreciate it. And we, cook, we hope you keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. Take care and have a great rest of your Saturday. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.